Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, Kevin's still away on assignment, and I'm still reeling through the uh, newfound fatherhood that has struck me. But we're going to do something special to try to get things back on track. So we're going to be talking about the Yuppie Fantasia series, the first and second film, and of course the third part, which was released earlier this year. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from the heart of his podcasting empire over in Sweden is none other than Mr. Kenneth Brorson. Hey, everybody. And uh, let me give you some tips and advice being um, being the master of my empire. You can drop the tongue twister if you like. Like, <laughs> Kenny B is fine. Kenny B, <laughs> right? yes, so indeed. Kind of, right. You're doing your best, sir, and I love you for it. But, or, uh, or that other uh, alias that some people know you by, uh, Sleazy K, right? Um, don't don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's the, the, it's the, the, not the, secret, the avenue. Uh, the secret Batman voice alias, right? Uh, I'm Sleazy K. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not really. But uh, this is not the avenue for for these things, so we don't talk about him. Right, right, right. Well, thank you for coming here on this uh, special episode. Uh, Kenneth has decided to uh, join me as we kind of reflect back on two older films and do something that he doesn't do that often. That is, bring him sort of into the fold of a very recent uh, Hong Kong film. Right. Mm-hmm. Your focus with a lot of the work you do, you focus on. Old Taiwan War, you focus on um, some modern stuff. I mean, you guys recently talked about Train to Busan for your Korean show, um, but primarily you still kind of live in older cinema, right? For sure, but uh, I'll tell you, and this is going to sound way too philosophical because we, we, it's movies after all, but I'm finding that with age, I become a bit more looser in my thinking and more open to... Um, opening up my uh, creative structure and going where the fun is Mm. and the fun is sometimes not restricting yourself right so and approaching things that are new to you where you don't have a preconceived notion of what it's going to be like because i'm not familiar with actors or filmmaking styles or or or, um, trends in cinema that becomes fun when you decide to sidestep your structure a little bit so seeing Japan Fantasia free here I've seen the first two a while back but that represented one of those uh, choices that I probably wouldn't have approached it uh, because I, I think I was mildly aware of it but then it left me and it, it was nice to uh, to again uh, widen your widen your creative structure a little bit so um, and I think that comes with age uh, rewound rewind 10 years back and i think it was more <laughs> it, it's dumb talking of principles but but i think i was more like this is all i do 
and all I'm gonna do. And no one listens to those principles anyway, so why not uh, go where the fun is? And that's uh, that's my main point of it all. So, uh, uh, but but it's also thanks to you and this show that helps me become a little bit more aware, and also you. Um, uh, giving me tips and pointers of uh, where to go and things like that and uh, was kind enough to um, introduce me to um, to the third movie in question so um it's a uh, it's a fun time to uh, to explore is my point well that's all well and good and of course this show lives in a great homage to the podcast on fire series um, especially the original show and for anybody who's not familiar I don't know if you would listen to the show and of course not be familiar with the podcast on fire network but you should be um, can you give just a quick rundown of the shows that you do and uh, some of the focus? Well, primarily, the flagship show covers Hong Kong cinema, uh, which is called Podcast on Fire. That was the one that started it all. And I guess nowadays the focus is mostly vintage because we we, we feel there's a, there's a listener allure in terms of that show and then we sort of have to not in a forced way but sort of have to focus on the more high profile stuff that doesn't mean we don't go the routes and talk um movies that doesn't seem to be in the in the public consciousness but but for sure we review the big jackie chan movies the big summer hong movies uh, some sometimes new jackie and summer hong movies like uh, Police Story 2013 and The Bodyguard, Railroad Tigers, and that's the flagship show in all its simplicity. We, we tend to keep it simple and approachable and also inclusive, which is always my point, I think. Uh, one of the three points being that we, at the best of our abilities, we need to provide some context, but also not to make it stuffy and boring. It needs to be fun. And the third point is to make it inclusive, because one of my pet peeves in criticism is elitism right where people argue opinions and that's the opinion that should reign and as daft as that sound paul sounds paul uh, unfortunately there are there is criticism out there that is uh, snobbish and i thoroughly detest that so i always want to make sure that the listeners get a feeling of that you should also uh, not not only perhaps uh, try the movies in question, like ha- have fun doing so and uh, give yourself a good time, but also you should share your view and be proud of your view. There's nothing wrong with adding the hundredth view on a known Jackie Chan movie because your view is a unique one. Even if we feel, feel, feel the same, it's a unique one. So I always uh, want to have that uh, aura flowing through that show. And, and of course, the other shows that came out of... Uh, our creative desires, uh, you know, trying out reviewing Japanese movies and uh, a silly joke on my behalf started the Korean show and uh, an interesting category free adult cinema started our show on that. So I, I, I hope there's uh, plentiful choices uh, for, for listeners who do go to our site, podcastonfire.com, where we have the network. And um, it's a... Uh, it's a matter of pride, I think. Yeah, I'm very proud of uh, the work I put in. It's certainly not perfect. I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination. I get things wrong, but I don't try to pull them out of my behind, uh, these uh, facts, and try and make up stuff on the fly. I always try to think of myself as, I'm, in most cases, I am probably wrong, but I'm going to preface and say that I think this is 
the fact we're talking about. I think that was when we made that movie. I think uh, he made that movie. I think that was uh, the box office number or whatever. So uh, it's a long and long way of saying that uh, it's important to have a little little self distance to these things too, and uh, be open to um, uh, criticism and also have a good attitude about these things. Plus, it's fun. It's fun to talk of uh, movies with uh, your friends this way. Uh, talking talking with you. Uh, 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 when you guest on the show is uh, is my fuel because I can't do this alone, and uh, so, so I'm nothing with without the people I talk to, and that includes you. And more to the point, I mean, it's a broad range of people that you do bring on board. Um, you know, I'm very honored to be able to guest on occasion, and you've had, uh, you know, uh, along with Stu, you're the sort of original voice on on the series, but you've brought in people who are really subject matter experts on a wide range of cinema. And I think that that's one of the great things about the show is that, you know, whether you're interested in Japan, whether you're interested in Korea or Taiwan or Hong Kong or whatever, Category 3, you're going to get a wide variety of experience and voices, not just your voice, right? Um, no, that would, be, that, would, that would be terrible to hear, to hear this bork bork noise coming at you every, every episode and only that voice. So obviously that would be awfully terrible. I did want to take um, a, a chance to mention that you're actually, at the time of this recording, getting ready, or you've, you've wrapped one of your series, right? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I had to think for a moment, like, what? when did this happen? But obviously it was like yesterday. <laughs> I've moved on already, so I've already forgotten it. Yeah, we, we wrapped, uh, for now anyway, I mean, it's a big indefinite hiatus so for all intents and purposes it is the last one we did a show called the golden ninja podcast we were focused on these uh, ninja movies by often godfrey ho starring richard harrison that uh, had uh, old footage from somewhere else in asia combined with new footage often starring richard harrison combined to make a new movie to sell to the international market and you can find these movies uh, and you probably have throughout decades looking through uh, VHS bins and cheap DVD bins. You, you can probably find these movies, Ninja Terminator and Ninja Squad and uh, Diamond Ninja Force. And as goofy as these movies are, that subject matter was always fraught, fraught with um, or filled with inaccuracies. And we thought there are experts on the matter, not us, that have told the truth. So my theory was there can be context and fun connected to these movies too. Meaning that we we forward the expert views that have been established by experts such as Jesus Persalina and then try and set the record straight a little bit uh, in terms of uh, how much Godfrey Ho did, for instance, when it came to this type of technique and these type of types of genre movies. And uh, that was uh, all good fun, but we ended it because these movies are not uh, easy to review on a constant basis because the way they are structured, whether they contain ninjas or kickboxers combined with old footage, it's not easy to vary up your review style, which was the point my co-host Ed Glazer made. And I thought, uh, therefore, we ended at 16 um, uh, with uh, their IFDs, as the company is called, very first cut-and-paste action picture. And they're very lost. And uh, ironically... The Golden Ninja podcast ended on a non-ninja note, but uh, nonetheless, we we went out, uh, uh, you know, as uh, good as we could, and uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of the up the run of shows because uh, sometimes there is an end game, and in this case, it felt uh, like an, an appropriate one. 
Well, if, again, you're not familiar with uh, the work that Kenneth does, please go to check out the stuff that he does in audio form at podcastonfire.com. And you can check out his writing, too, at over at uh, So Good Reviews. And we're going to hear more from Kenneth in just a moment. After we take this short musical break, we're going to come back and talk about the first film in this series, 1989's Yuppie Fantasia. And welcome back. So for our first review this week, as we take a, take a trip down memory lane, as it were, uh, we're jumping back to 1989 with the first film, uh, The Yuppie Fantasia. Um, this coming through, I guess, Golden Harvest circuit at the time was a fairly well-received film financially. It didn't do huge numbers. I mean, we've talked about um, over on Kenneth's show some of the big number films um, you know, like in the Aces series doing, you know, 26 or 29 million uh, Hong Kong dollars. This film was a marginal success around 16 um, from director Gordon Chan with a script um, also worked on by Gordon Chan and um, several other people, but produced in part by the star Lawrence Chang. So before we get into the story, um, did you have any thoughts on Lawrence Chang? I mean, because He's not somebody you typically think of as a leading man. He's had a few leading roles over the years, but um, primarily he's been a supporting kind of presence, right? I, I guess so. I mean, there, there, there's not this constant exposure to him through through plowing uh, through these random Hong Kong movies. You don't encounter Lawrence Chang and came to an Andy Lau or anything. So, but I never disliked him. It was just one of those guys that I seen in primarily these movies the most lasting memory i have of lawrence is through his directing work uh, he's done a couple of solid movies but i think my favorite movie he did was this um thriller called murder which i, re- I remember really liking i don't think he yeah he was in it he, he was a uh, supporting role but i think carol cheng and uh, damien lao were the main stars and that showed that these the expected from these players primarily dodo and, and lawrence is something you should put to the side uh, because they can do thrillers as well. And I think it didn't have any goofy tangents at all. So it was quite a straightforward uh, movie in 1992 or three, I think. Yeah, uh, a movie called Murder. I think I hope it was reissued uh, throughout the years because I have an old DVD of it. So I hope uh, viewers have had a chance to um, to check it out, even if they were not aware that Lawrence uh, directed it. So Lawrence, who I guess in Hong Kong, he's more frequently known by his nickname of Adan. And he has been very active, even though he kind of fell off the radar in terms of uh, acting roles um, or leading roles. Uh, he's been very active. He was doing TV you know, series for a while. He, I remember seeing um, he did kind of like a interview series where he was going around to 
celebrities' homes, people like Raymond Wong and others, and just talking with them about, you know, their experiences and their daily lives and things sort of in the, in the post-era of uh, big Hong Kong cinema. Um, but he's been a very active as a producer. He's worked quite a bit with Barbara Wong, uh, Wong Chun Chun, and um, you can look at his producer credits with things like The Eye, Truth or Dare, Six Floor Rear Flat, Six Strong Guys, The Eye 2. Coming all the way back up to what some consider sort of a really big return for him, um, his directorial return with Breakup 100 back in 2014, uh, which he also worked with Chrissy Chow. So we'll probably mention that film uh, a little bit more going forward. But let's talk about this first one, um, the original Yuppie Fantasia. The uh, The basic story here is that it's kind of like a seven-year itch um, scenario. Uh, after seven years, mid-level manager Lung Foon, played by Lawrence Cheng, is at odds in his relationship with his career-minded wife, Anne, played by Dudu Cheng, or Carol Cheng. Um, when a misunderstanding leads them to separation, Foon finds himself free to pursue other relationships, but these romantic entanglements seem to bring back feelings for his ex-wife. So I, I guess it's kind of a parallel or a film, um, be, you know, because kind of based on the Chinese title, um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, small man's record or small man's diary, uh, akin to the Chow Yun-Fat movie, Diary of a Big Man, which I think came out a year or two earlier. Mm -hmm. um, here you have a very standard sort of late 80s, early 90s urban comedy that was uh, popular for the time. But rather than being sort of a big player, Lawrence here and his friends, they're kind of henpecked husbands. They still do the bad stuff, right? They still go womanizing and, and do the stuff that we'd find in, you know, as a plot device in other movies. But here, these guys are kind of, you know, dominated by their wives in many ways, with the exception of perhaps Pierre, um, who kind of plays the reverse card on his wife, um, who I think is played by Sybil Hu, right? Uh, yeah, the the Taiwanese wife, or she returns to Taiwan at one point. Right. Because I, I, I kept thinking, because this movie has a professional thing that you might mention that made me think, was Sybil Hu, Sybil Hu Hong Kong or Taiwanese? Because... I've never been able to determine that through her through her action roles. So. Right, right. Um, so you have part of the story central on the focus between the relationship between Lawrence Chang and uh, Carol Chang, sort of their split. They go through the process of separation, which is different from divorce, I guess, where they sign a separation contract and then... After three years, it becomes a legal divorce. They're they're then truly divorced. Yeah, my my uh, eyes uh, open up and my ears perked up there because of the um, uh, the cameo, uh, the the lawyer cameo. Uh, in in this case, uh, did you notice who uh, was um, who who was the lawyer? Um, Kirk Wong, right? Yes, and yeah, it was a, a not nice little uh, departure because Kirk, whenever he acts, is. A total bastard <laughs> and here it was uh, just a lawyer being totally kind and have no agenda at all <laughs> yeah um and you know i i guess the the first thing we perhaps want to get to is the the idea here of lawrence as kind of the leading man because his romantic escapades which extend from this movie into the second movie and then and into the third movie he gets paired with um some very attractive co-stars or, or, you know, um, uh, 
co-leads in some cases. Um, in this film, um, he's uh, paired off later initially with Shri uh, Chung, who comes in as his new boss, and perhaps the you know the the second act of the film kind of focuses on the two of them getting close, and then the final act of the film um, he ends up meeting uh, Elizabeth Lee, uh, his ex-girlfriend, and this again complicates matters of him kind of reconciling with his his wife Anne. Um, do you buy it? Do you buy him in these relationships with these women? I mean, sure for the duration of the movie, but it's not it's it's not terribly convincing. I like Lawrence in general. He he's uh, neither the most elevated screen presence there is, or the most uh, heinous screen presence there is. So, which is he he he's fine. He's decent, and uh, yeah, why not? But it it. it the reason I'm sort of neutral about it is that the fact that the, these movies don't elevate matters, but they, they're not terrible either. They're, they're pleasant enough. And I can, I, sure, sure, I, I can buy that he's friendly, at, at the very least, with these uh, characters, that they would all fall for him, uh, well, that, that Sherry Chung would fall for him. I, I, I kind of wasn't expecting, because it didn't seem like he was going down that route. They were still professional. He was sort of pining for her, but didn't you get the sense that 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 Cherry Chung did her bit and then she was done mid movie? You know, as soon as Elizabeth Lee came in, we had nothing in yeah. terms of the pining for Cherry Chung. So it f- felt like an episode that came and went and didn't matter that much. Other than I don't mind seeing Cherry because I love her. Yeah, it's there's this there's this thread that runs early on where um, I think his his buddy Pierre, who's played by Peter Lai. Um, he has um, a girlfriend on the side, played by um, Sharon Tang, Tang Shui-man. And there's a part where, I guess, Lawrence ends up having to take the fall for him. Because, then you know, they, they come home together and, and his wife is there. Mm. And so Lawrence, because he's already separated from Anne, you know, is kind of forced to pretend to be her you know she's she's his new girlfriend um and then there's a moment where he says you know the two of them are kind of sitting together at night consoling each other and he 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 regrets not having made a move on her uh, Mm. by the next morning you know so he's he's being mr nice guy for the most part you know he 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 still wants to be faithful to his wife but he kind of has the urge you know to go and fool around which i I think is a neat more neat balance rather than portray him as you know if this would have been a category three movie the look of him and his friends would have meant tons of visits to prostitutes and um, pr clubs but right. he he keeps his you know he um, he thinks a little bit more which i guess is more realistic because he knows his screen presence and gordon chan knows what how he should portray lawrence based on how he looks again he isn't uh, Mr. Macho, even though he tries to tell himself in the first scene in uh, in the bathroom mirror and the voiceover that I've got Macho flair, but you know, keep telling yourself that you you don't. <laughs> You're a good guy and right. nice, and that's fine. And it, you know, it's I think it's interesting to point out too because if you compare this with other films that are basically centered around fooling around, like uh, I'm thinking of Men Suddenly in Black, right, mm-hmm. where it's much more. It, you know, the, the the characters are much more direct and it's like, this is, you know, Eric saying, this is what we're going to do, right? We're going to go and, 
and we're going to fool around. And, and that's, that's our, that's our target. Um, and then they have to avoid being caught by the wives. Whereas here it's like Lawrence is very sort of muddle headed about it. Um, he's not, he, he ends up doing the right thing in this first movie mm. for, for, you know, mm. when he does ultimately try and confront Sheree Chung in her home, um, he stumbles across her, her ex-husband, uh, played by Alfred Chung, who's kind of hiding outside and basically says, you know, this is your job. Go in and fix the curtains, you know, and reconcile. And, and I mean, that's not the best depiction of this kind of these kind of dramatic beats. But I appreciated that it still felt like Gordon Chan and a writing team. They were thinking how to make it a little bit more realistic and logical rather than this uh, movie fantasy. And I, I kind of appreciated that, even though the movie ho- hovers around it. It's fine. It's pleasant enough, but nothing cl- nothing classical about it. Because uh, uh, I've seen my fair share of um, misadventures in fooling, as I've dubbed um, these kind of movies, whether adult movies or not. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, maybe Lawrence in later roles in his uh, career have, uh, you know, elevated his much, much of flair. But, I don't know, it, it felt fine. For me, and uh, he's not the best actor in the world, but it felt like the most uh, suitable depiction based on how he looks and how he acts and uh, what he can do on screen. So didn't mind that at all. Uh, um, maybe if you see this movie tied together, which we did, it becomes a bit obvious that this movie, these ladies, next movie, <laughs> a new leading lady and a third movie. Holy crap. <laughs> this is not age appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but but okay fine uh, yeah. I'll, I'll 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 I will judge after the movie is done so yeah so for G- director Gordon Chan this was his directorial debut um, do you think this was a fairly strong entry for a new director I think so it, it comes off as professional and with decent amount of thought how to portray this relationship comedy with with the you know it's set in the yuppie world and the financial world partly but it's not solely about that and i i, I felt there was an assurance uh, uh because he, he isn't he's essentially going for the the verbal here he's not uh, making a stylistic excursion um in any scene really and that is that is not a boring focus, I think. And I think also why matters are even more elevated, that why this makes for quite a decent uh, directorial debut and decent depiction of uh, relationships on the rocks and all of that is the fact that this movie is, uh, as you might have in your notes, I won't steal your notes, but <laughs> this movie was shot in sync sound, which is a rarity for 1989 in Hong Kong. And I, I don't know about you, but that changes the game almost instantly. I think that, like they did this kudos already at that stage, that, that they decided when they didn't have to, to go for sync sound. I love sync sound. I wish mm. all films were in sync sound, even when people were speaking different dialects of Chinese. Yeah. Um, Gordon did it for a fair few movies initially. I think this, Inspector Pink Dragon, and the second, not the first, but the second Fight Back to School movie is Sing Sound. And that's all Gordon Chan. Yeah. Um, And this film looks really good. I mean, for the era um, with the, you know, the the lighting and the technology they're using, the the DVD, the Megastar DVD um, still holds up fairly well. Um, It's not remastered or anything, but it's... um, it has it has the look of the era to it, uh, much less so for I think some of the the other versions, right? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I won't go on a rant about it, but I think uh, the reissues by Joy Sales had a tendency to be processed differently. They were often blue for some reason, really, really blue tinted. Uh, so I really, I, I prefer these um, the the transfers that were there before the Joy Sales. But hey, if there's no other option, obviously it's fine. Yeah, yeah I have the for the second film. There's a, I can notice a really big difference between. Um, the the way that they were they were handled in in the processing because I have the mm-hmm. Fortune Star legendary re-release um, for the second film and it's almost like night and day in terms of uh, the look <laughs> of the film um, and the feeling that it conveys too because it just doesn't look quite as nice even though it was you know made a year later yeah it's it's not the original elements because they're still using that that vast star tv library that they struck in the 90s and just re-releasing them on dvd but the the, the people at joy sales had a tendency to process what they had so um so it looked like that but hey i'm i'm i'm, I'm being picky it's just something i noticed in in the stuff that i've uh, bought uh, throughout uh, from that collection so let's talk a little bit um about uh, carol cheng uh, dudu cheng how did you think of her in in this first film? I think she's always watchable. Again, no one is really, uh, you know, uh, providing award-winning material, but I think she has a knack for uh, being this uh, uh, professional woman, but also uh, she is uh, a bit commanding uh, towards her husband. Again, you used the term... Um, uh, used the term earlier that uh, he's he's certainly not the alpha male in the relationship, and uh, I, I she, she's never not watchable, even though this is not her finest work as such. And the movie doesn't really go for comedy as such; it's not farcical either. Everybody is playing it quite realistically, so it's not uh, her fatal ways, Carol Chang here or anything that the wild aura that that came with. But I I do like her, and I do like them together, and the beats having to do with the fact that they're kind of clueless on how to interact with the world now that they're separated there's one scene with carol where she tries to be one of the boys in the office and she sort of fails at it she's she doesn't know how to be new and uh, move forward so that insecurity and that those social failures they're a nice beat tracking back to the fact that gordon chan depicts this quite confidently for a new film director um, because i don't know his background uh, prior to um prior to this movie. I don't know if he did TV at all, but uh, they, they're, they're all, um, they, they are good together. I have to say, though, that the movie doesn't strike this emotional chord with me, though. Uh, you, you watch the relationship, it's fine. You sort of wish that they can find a common ground again and maybe re-examine it, but the movie isn't uh, pulling those uh, strings and trying out uh, melodrama and trying out drama at all, really. But then again, it isn't farcical. It just keeps a very the even level, which is all fine. But maybe, I don't know, it's not something I would introduce as a look at this romantic comedy from Hong Kong, you new viewer out there, let's watch it. Because it it isn't really doing that much. I think it's one of those things you should introduce people to a little bit later on after they've experienced some wacky comedy and some drama and then see how they deal with um, what seems to me anyway like realism a little bit more realism but i mentioned pleasant i mentioned decent and it ends up at that because this relationship is you, you root for it a little bit but not hugely and 
but then again, no one is at fault for anything here. They're all good. They're all good. I think uh, uh, supporting cast and uh, maybe if this was dubbed, maybe I wouldn't have reacted to it as positively as I just described. Maybe it would have been more, well, seen this before. But there, there is something about seeing sound that make you want to uh, judge this movie a little bit more in detail and uh, give it a minor, minor little, you did okay. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of of, uh, of Carol in, in these kinds of roles where she's kind of like the wife next door and um, manages to, I think, you know, in something like this, it's not an outright comedy, but there are comedic scenes. There's a, a segment later on where she's kind of dating Paul Chun. And, uh, Who is not a bastard for once. That was no, lovely to see Paul Chun being very timid. He's very timid and, and he's very comedic and, and he, he wants to get right to it. Um, basically, and and so you know, she's able to move between uh, moments of drama and light moments of comedy in a fairly believable way, fairly quickly too, because um, some of the scenes will, will will shift suddenly, right? Where you'll be in a yeah. funny scene one moment, and then you know, she'll be you know very emotional, not overly emotional, but you know, you can tell it's meant to be dramatic in the next. There, there's nothing bad with uh, depicting everything at a sort of medium level here i think that's a perfectly fine choice actually you're so used to hong kong cinema being over the top whether melodrama comedically and and this one goes for a a little bit more of a lower tone Uh, i mean the biggest i guess comedy scene is when Lawrence chang hides all the condoms and it's a parody of a better tomorrow yes and uh yes it is wacky but it's not played as um Stephen Chow scene or anything like that where reactions are big uh, you know no one is uh, no no one has their tongue out or anything <laughs> kid to Stephen so I thought okay you earned that m- moment because I sort of thought it was funny because it uh, it comes back to haunt him uh, as uh, after he's been suave and uh, you know uh, <laughs> placed all the condoms so why he would need so many condoms well he's telling himself he's macho I guess and that's certainly not realistic <laughs> yeah and I, I think in terms of um this kind of role, you know, this is a good this is a good film. I wouldn't consider it a classic of the rom com genre for this period. I think if you go back a year or two earlier, um, her pairing with George Lamb in uh, Heart to Hearts is um, it, it's 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 a bit stronger for me. Um, she has another pairing, I think, in uh, where she's Andy Lau's brother in a film called Perfect Match, released the same year. That just stuck out stood out in my mind as a little bit more memorable. I can't um, believe you remember all of those because there was so there were a fair amount of those and all seemed to star Carol, mm. and so I, I can't differentiate between those very solid like D and B movies. I think she she did multiple with George as well. So I have no idea which one I liked and didn't like. Yeah, a couple of them just you know over the years I would return to. They became favorites of mine, um, and I, but I always liked her in in this kind of role. But she was equally good when she would do. Um, dramatic, straight dramatic turns as well. So, oh, for sure, for sure, agree. Before we kind of wrap this up, the, let's talk about the buds, um, Pierre and and Tai Long as kind of the. I mean, if there's really a lot of comedy in the film, it's it's coming from his relationship with these two guys who, you know, kind of make him his worst, try to make him his worst self at, at times. Um, they're not really super recognizable character actors for, for Hong Kong um, you know they they weren't you know they're they're not an Eric Zhang for example these, these aren't guys like Manfred Wong and um, Peter Lai but do you think they had a good chemistry the three of them together for bringing out uh, the comedy did 
did it seem like that these guys would have been friends? Yeah, why not? I mean, it's not uh, something that spiked my interest hugely because the movie was, again, I'm hopping on about this, but the movie wasn't attempting this uh, huge verbal volume. But it seems like they're they're good enough uh, together and the, the dynamic that you just described, that they're a little bit more um, forward when it comes to uh, wooing and fooling and they have a plan and program in place, it seems like, which is sort of horrible <laughs> to be honest with you i don't know if there was peter lie only that had like two or three girlfriends going at the same time and he had them ranked as well like you're number two and you're number three and things like that and even in the same office it might have been in the same office he ranked them so that, that, that's rather horrible but it, it i i thought it was all part of this of the gathered sort of pleasant rom-com vibe that uh, sure sure these guys can be friends and they're they're enjoy they're an enjoyable visual together i suppose they all look uh, quite distinctly different and not they're not hunks neither of them obviously and neither am i so uh, I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> i'm not judging uh, but it, it's all fine and to hear it all to hear the the decent chemistry and sync sound uh, helps immensely to be honest it actually elevates matters quite a lot when you can judge uh, obviously I don't understand Cantonese but I, I, I can hear that there's decent comfort between the guys in my opinion one other brief cameo that we get here is a very young Vivian Chow uh, mm-hmm. who, who pops on screen um, who kind of sets the ball in motion for the overall story arc of the of the separation um, between the main characters um, but in general yeah I think that this is a you know, again, sort of a mid-level entry to the rom-com genre, very technically sound in the way it's put together um, and the way it's made. It it looks solid. It has a lot of the elements. There's a there's what I like to call the romantic jazz montage, uh, mm-hmm. which these films often used, where there's just a scene of, like, two characters doing stuff together, no dialogue, um, you know, scene after scene, and then just some, you know, con- sort of contemporary jazz music that they would put together for this era. It really fits the era. It, 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 when I when I hear that music, I'm just taken back to the late 80s, early 90s. Were you pining for a sequel after all was said and done without spoiling the ending? I really wasn't. Um, I mean, you do. It does. It does really kind of leave a couple threads hanging because you do have. Um, I think Tai, you know, Tai Long's wife is pregnant, and um, you know, he's lost his job. They've all, you know, they 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 all quit their jobs, and then you know, basically, you have this kind of the the relationship between Anne and between Foon is a bit ambiguous. You know, you're 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 not sure are they getting back together or are they not getting back together? Um, because it you know moves between this on again off again state. And the fact that it was semi-successful financially, I guess, is what you know prompted them to to go into the the sequel a year later. Um, and so we'll talk about that in uh, just a minute. And then, I guess, finally, uh, a couple other added elements. There's a love song thrown in the middle at some point, sung by Jackie Chung, um, mm. which was almost a requirement for the era. It's either a Jackie Chung song, an Andy Lau song, a Leslie Chung song, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, they had no cantopop uh, as actors here, so they had to find someone else, I guess. But uh, why not uh, pick uh, a heavenly king? Mm. And I guess the the other aspect of this that we'll sort of close things out on, uh, as you kind of mentioned, they they sort of drop 
Shuri Chung's role about in the second act, and it's picked up by the appearance of Jenny, um, the ex-girlfriend, played by Elizabeth Lee. And I guess they're doing this because they are kind of setting this as a mini-anthology, in a way, of, you know, this is a diary of this yuppie, basically, and his romantic encounters. But do you feel the pacing is off because of that, or do you think it's that there's enough there that, okay, they spent enough time with Cherie, they didn't need to drag it out, and, you know, here's another girl, and they spent enough time with her, or do you think it would have been better with the focus on one? Well, while it was going on, the pacing was all right. When And when you talk about it, you, you mentioned Alfred Chung's performance of what uh, Lung Fong uh, ultimately does. Uh, that sounds fine, but I was thrown that that, that was sort of the, the pin in it. And then he moved on to another episode. Structurally, it sounds fine, but I was a little bit thrown that you got her, but she's not a through line in the entire movie. So, so I was a little bit thrown by that, but uh, um, it didn't feel like it was boring after that point, though. It's uh, It was just um, unexpected structure. Uh, uh, in my head, I was expecting something else, So, uh, but uh, but I picked up the thread afterwards. So, uh, But um, to have more Sherry would have been welcome, of course. Uh, it, I don't know. The, the structure, I think, would have been intact if you didn't have Elizabeth Lee and he would have went with Sherry as... The main woman. I think the structure could have been worked out using that, but obviously they made a different choice, and cinema is, uh, is uh, filled with uh, choices, and uh, that's what they went with. Um, but uh, I don't know. Elizabeth Lee's character, I think, uh, felt a little bit too um, childish to me for it to be totally likable. Uh, they they certainly weren't. Uh, they weren't gonna reignite that romance because they they weren't in sync as adults at that point. Lawrence Cheng and Elizabeth Lee's characters. Um, so so yeah, I, I just would have liked more Sherry, but uh, hey. And uh, did you get the impression at because at a certain point they're kind of together, but I I wasn't ever really sure how together they were. Were they still sleeping separately? Or had they actually gotten together? Because that was, I think I got the mm. I get the impression that they never got together. But then I wasn't sure when I watched it through the second time. I don't remember if there was any literal scene. Obviously, no sex scene. But uh, if there was any literal scene with them in bed, hmm. <laughs> for, some, yeah. for some reason, I th- I'm thinking I think they did, but I might be confusing it with the second movie. Um, she certainly was ahead of matters because she calls him at work in the middle of a meeting and asks, "Please tell me you love me." And I don't think that's the good basis of a relationship where you need confirmation at all times yeah. uh, during the day. All right, let us take a short uh, musical break, and we'll be back to move on into our further discussion of the sequel called Brief Encounter in Shinjuku.
And welcome back. So we continue on with our discussion of the Yuppie Fantasia series with its sequel that came out a year later, Brief Encounter in Shinjuku. Um, So this film, perhaps not quite as financially successful as the first one, coming in at only about 9 million Hong Kong dollars. And I'm guessing this is perhaps why we didn't get um, a third film from director Gordon Chan um, after this. And um, it's interesting to think about that in terms of what prompted this third film later or earlier this year in 2017. But the story picks up mere months after um, the, the last film with uh, Lung Fun's saga continuing. And he and his wife Anne are still at odds but attempting to reconcile Things get complicated now when Anne's ex-boyfriend, Alan, comes back, and further still, when Foon gets sent to Japan on a work assignment with his attractive assistant, Wendy, played by the very lovely Rosamund Kwan. So we pretty much have a direct continuation. I mean, it's a few months because I think um, Tai Lung's wife is now very pregnant by this yep. point. She was she mentioned she was pregnant at the end of the last film when he got lost his job. Now she's... I guess in her eighth or ninth month when we pick up the film yeah. and ready to go. And so the hijinks continue. This time, um, instead of Lung Fun's ex coming into the picture, it's Anne's ex who's coming in, played by uh, Alan Fong. Uh, this makes Lung Fun jealous. And so, again, we get kind of a segmented story because the, the first half is kind of him kind of dealing with Alan in the picture, um, trying to reconcile with, uh, you know, Alan trying to reconcile with, with Anne. And then things take a turn because he gets sent to Japan with Rosamund Kwan. And this is where we get the title, Brief Encounter in Shinjuku, because it is a fairly brief encounter, but a significant one. It's strangely more farcical this time around, don't you think? It, they, they go for a little bit more um, foolishness, especially from Lawrence Cheng's character, uh, where when they play up the jealousy and crap like that. Uh, you know, he he climbed. It's it's. I, I didn't really appreciate that to be honest. That tone, I, because it's not particularly funny when he tries to listen in on conversations by climbing, climbing that part of the boat and trying to in daylight and in full view, uh, trying to listen in on and talking to Alan, and then when he barges in in the restaurant and all of that play. So the movie is going for slightly slightly more hijinks and uh, goofiness, I suppose, and not that successfully. It, um, I'll, I'll have some notes later. It, the, the, the Japan section shows the movie finding a little bit better footing, in my opinion. Right, and and much like the structure of the first film, um, pretty much the first act is the focus on Alan, and then that kind of gets resolved, and then we shift to... Um, Rosamund and Lawrence getting and getting sent to Japan, and, and again it brings back this question of, really is is she really going to be attracted to to Lawrence that much? Um, but it's still somewhat believable, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's a separation that was deemed to be like a few months. They they decided to extend that or not adhere to that and try to get back together, and that and that's all fine. I mean, why not an episode to episode two where they try and there are some cute touches. Initially, when um, I think Lawrence was, he might be unemployed in the beginning of the movie, uh, or he's simply not working that day, and he calls Anne at work, and he's she's quite happy that he does. And I thought that was a cute touch because it shows that she's not consumed by work necessarily; that she allows, she lets that in, uh, she she lets him in, and uh, they they connect a little bit, lovey dovey, and uh, 
uh, first love style. Um, and, and that's good. I mean, and, and that tone is upheld by the performers quite nicely. They, they know their roles now, so they, they can bring the, the pleasantness uh, quite uh, quite well. Strangely, though, it's not sync sound. What's that yeah. about? <laughs> not not. You, not, you wonder not if it's all. a budget concern? You wonder if it's a budget concern? Do you think so? It might have been. It might have been um, in part because they knew they were going to be maybe filming in Japan and they just didn't want the extra crew. And so they just went the sort of, well, we'll do it in post kind of thing. Um, but an, an interesting choice to be sure. And it's a sad one because, again, it, it's much better when you hear, um, although it does sound like a majority of the leading cast did go into the studio afterwards to record their voices. Oh, yeah. um, but it's still, it sometimes it's not matching up and it's just, uh, it's hard on my ears to be sure. Yeah, when it flip-flops in a series, that's when you sort of, um, you feel like it detracts a little bit, uh, even though it's in sections, it's sort of on the same level, but only in section uh, as the first movie, but only in the sections, uh, in my opinion. A um, couple additions. This time we get Kenneth Zhang uh, as the kind of odd boss who's never happy about anything. Um <laughs> Because uh, if you remember the la- at the end of the last film, basically all the guys had, uh, you know, uh, t- uh, Tai Lung had been fired, and then Lawrence quit his job um, in support of Tai Lung, and so now they're working for uh, he's working for a new company, and this is where he gets to meet with his assistant Wendy, um, who's engaged to a dentist, played by uh, Lee Chung Ling, I think. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, uh, by the way, the third, and, and this is not explicit, so don't, you don't need to bleep this out, but they, uh, when we talk of Sleaze on our Sleazy show, or when Sleazy K does, Lee Chung Ling, uh, together with Charlie Cho and Stuart Ong, he is the third coxman mm-hmm. of Category 3. That's, that's Lee Chung Ling in a, in a, here in a regular role. Yes, in a regular role, as Charlie Cho did um, on occasion, and, and many Category 3 actors kind of, will, you know, are known to bounce in and bounce out uh, from time to time. The, um, and I, I guess the issue is she's just, as she explains it at one point, um, her relationship with her fiancé, John, is uh, Lee Chung-ling, is very flat, right? Mm. It's stable, but it's flat. And um, so her romance that blossoms well in Japan with um, Lawrence Cheng's character uh, is like a roller coaster, and so, you know, it brings some excitement. And, and I get, you know, so that kind of makes it believable that these two characters spend a bit more time together. They're alone uh, when they have free time in Japan after their business dealings are done. Then they basically go around and do dating things, right? They go through a, a maze in the rain and they eat food together and it brings them closer. And then one thing leads to another. And, and and I really think that was all. They were they were good together. I think uh, I I'm a huge fan of Rosamund. Uh, sometimes when you think of her, are she really that much of a tested actress? And I think I think she she decently is. But uh, she she always brings it. Uh, obviously, once upon a time in China, the series she is wonderful. I think with uh, Jet Li as uh, you know the proactive one in that relationship, and I think she is wonderful. But I I like their scenes here because they are. They are acting professionally, and they are solving things together. The crisis that um, 
that happens. You know, they, they've left some material in Hong Kong and it doesn't go into a whole stick of what did you do? What are we going to do? No, they're focused and they are going to solve it professionally and together. And for me, it didn't matter if it actually turned out to be some kind of romantic connection there. Um, Actually, Gordon plays with us in terms of that because Lawrence is quite careful to make sure that whatever advancements might happen, that he deflects that. There's a little scene where she jumps into his arms after she's been lost. And you can see him push her away a little bit because he also has that uh, he has to adhere to the commandments that Anne has placed on him which I think was a little bit unfair to be honest <laughs> all these demands that he should not do this he should not look at another, another lady and then comedic stick happens because at one point he's stuck in a bathroom with another lady so that there's the danger of breaking a commandment didn't think that was fair to be honest uh, uh, in terms of uh, creating trust and placing like a contracted demand on him because what did he do <laughs> no he he wasn't the bastard of their relationship but uh, hey that's a little thing that i that i noticed but i really liked them together rosamund and lawrence there's a natural chemistry there where it's pleasant to just see them uh, perform dialogue and hang out and they so, do they do have a nice way of uh, especially after they return from japan and now there's this kind of awkwardness between them where you get the sense that um you know, she's a bit more into him, but he's kind of being cold because, you know, Japan is over now and, and you know, mm. he's closer back to Anne. And um, they go on a company trip together. And they do a lot with just moving the story along with little glances, um, you know, from each of the actors that I think works really well Yeah. Um, in establishing that, that kind of, you know, complicated connection um, but I guess basically the thing to understand is that, uh, you know, there's, he's separated from Anne, but he does kind of go all the way this time, which he, it was unclear whether he did that in the first film. Yes. So he has. Which is why I think cheated. those demands are quite irrational uh, to place on him in the beginning of the movie there because um, he, he didn't uh, cheat or anything. And, um, so, you know, it, it does complicate uh, the matters of their reconciliation further by sort of the, the end of the film. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because here you have this is during the era of uh, Japanese popular culture, the big Jap- Japan pop wave that was very influential in Hong Kong at the time. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why they decided, well, we're going to, you know, uh, try to expand this out, make it a little bit more international. Um, and unfortunately it didn't pay off, um, because it, it did not bring in, uh, quite as much revenue as the first film. I don't know if it was because by this point, the sort of urban comedy had kind of run its course for this period, or people felt that Lawrence just wasn't, um, the, the, a big enough draw as a leading man. And it was just more of the same from the first film, um, any thoughts on why you think it might not have been as successful as the first one? It probably has a little bit to do with it. And I also think that there, there's not enough interest for two movies to sustain that Lung Fun and relationship. Because the more I watched two, the less I really rooted for them. Because it just seemed like they had too many obstacles in front of them. Which, of course, if you structure it that 
if you structure it like that dramatically, then that's the intent. But I, I kind of tuned out of it a little bit that I dealt with it well enough for one and a half movie, right? But no, maybe not two movies in a row where where I I found out that it it might be, you know I I wouldn't be surprised if they did separate when all was said and done. It didn't seem like there was this emotional hook and newly awakened butterflies in in, in their stomachs uh, uh, as the drama unfolds. I mean that that certainly happens with Rosamund and Lawrence in their sections. That, that there is an excitement there because my God, is it lovely to get along with someone? Right, and that's what sort of happens. Um, and and Ella, by the way, that Gordon sort of springs it on us, on us that oh my God, they they felt more than just, my, you're a good person because it cuts to uh, at one point, them in bed together. Yeah, and that wasn't lazy to me. I thought that was, yeah, you earned that. You earned being a little sneaky, uh, after ten fifteen minutes of getting uh, getting along. So uh, yeah, why not? In terms of uh, a couple of the other cameos here, we have a uh, very young Jan Lamb and Eric Koch, um, uh, big radio personalities and still radio personalities um, to some extent today. Did you have a note about uh, Eric Koch's haircut? Yep, bowl haircut, like you read about. <laughs> that, that looked like just place a ball on his head, cut, 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 done. And uh, but, he, but he's never been uh, precious about uh, his image as such because uh, he's often done comedies, but boy, has he done some great dramatic acting Eric caught I mean uh, the the Josie Ho movie Butterfly that he's in loved him in that very dark Eric caught performance and John Lum I think I associate him with being the uh, narrator of the McDowell yep. movies right yes, indeed yeah yep. this film like the first film does have a sort of a romantic jazzy montage at a certain point another theme song here uh, but this time by Sandy Lamb as well um and ultimately ends much in the same way as the um, first film ends, with uh, the the key couple of Foon and uh, Anne not able to reconcile because she learns of his infidelity. She's very angry, but he chases her, and you get the sense that she's kind of going to forgive him, um, you know, because she's kind of playing the angry wife slash girlfriend but she's not completely pushing him away yeah i suppose so but but at that point i didn't i, I didn't think that they had a chance based on what he did and they they, they felt apart they, they they felt as much apart as when they separated in the first movie it just felt like too much of an uphill mm. struggle which is what relationships uh, go through um brave of them of, to try of course to try and uh and mend things, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna be sort of taking the moral high ground and just my opinion, and you all gotta follow it. But if you if you mix in infidelity, then obviously you should probably end things at that point. But hey, that's just my opinion. But uh, then you gotta heal, if you will. And a couple of the story threads that carry over as we get as we get the two guys uh, support support character sidekicks to return. Manfred Wong, um, his wife goes on. To have their son, who and then she leaves him uh, because of his infidelity, and uh, then he ends up taking his work son to work and sticking him in the desk drawer. That's parenting one. Oh 101. my god! <laughs> you don't put baby in a drawer. Yeah, that's that's parenting one one indeed. It's, it's done for a comedic beat, but again, it's kind of um, you know, as Kenneth mentioned, it's moving it a little bit more into the comedy realm. 
than perhaps the first film, uh, you know, was was playing with. and uh, Peter Lai. It's, it's a distressing image because I just think, like, oh my God, he's not getting oxygen. <laughs> Someone take care of that baby. Yeah. I mean, you, you get a newborn. I, I, I don't think you were laughing your ass off watching that. <laughs> he's irresponsible. <laughs> you know, you, you got to have the responsibility sort of a um, thread in you. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it, I guess it beats hanging Baldy Jr. up. From his leg in the Aces Go Places movies and dropping oh, off the God. side of a yeah. building, right? <laughs> Throw, just throwing him flat out on the sofa for a gag. Yeah. Um, and yes, uh, we also have the return of Peter Lai as uh, Pierre, or Cunning, as he's sometimes referred to in the subtitles here, um, who, at the end of the first movie, he had said he was going to go back to Taiwan to try and reconcile with his wife, Sybil, who obviously that didn't go well because now he's with a younger girl, um who, you know, plays some of the... Fanny, who's played by Vindy Chan, who plays some of the uh, comedic relief here. As you mentioned, there's a scene where Foon gets stuck in the shower with her accidentally, and, um, you know, it's played for minor comedic beats. Um, But the guys don't take up quite as much of a presence in this film as they do in the first one. Yeah, certainly. And and, and I think that's a good way of saying it, that they, they are minor comedic beats and not these wild sequences for for this series they are wild but that's just because that's just because Yopin Fantasia played it rather straight uh, most of the time all right well that's going to wrap it up for i think our brief discussion of the second film when we come back after this musical break it's on to contemporary cinema with uh, 2017's Yuppie Fantasia 3 And welcome back. So for our final and sort of penultimate review for this episode, um, me catching back up on contemporary Hong Kong cinema that I wasn't able to actually see in the cinema um, uh, with Yuppie Fantasia 3 and also bringing Mr. Burson along for the ride. This time in the directorial chair, it's uh, Lawrence Cheng, as we mentioned, uh, taking over for the series as uh, director, I guess, also um, working in other aspects of, um, you know, the production side, as well as, um, you know, reviewing or returning to his lead role as Lang Fun. So it's basically 21 years after Shinjuku, you now have the 52-year-old Lang Fun, who is single. His wife, Anne, has left him uh, 13 years earlier after uh, and taken with them their 8-year-old daughter named Heihei. When Heihei suddenly returns after her mother's passing, life becomes a bit more tumultuous for Foon, particularly with his relationship with his current girlfriend and secretary, Bobo, played by Chrissy Chow. So, who is yeah, not 52 years old. No, who's definitely not 52 years old. So here we kind of move away from the yuppie aspect. Now we're in the 
what the grumpy middle-aged man aspect, I guess. Um, and Lawrence returning to a character that you know gave him some success um, back in the '80s '90s period. Um, and it's it kind of when I heard this announced, it was like really uh, going back to that well. Well, okay, but 2014 he had Breakup 100. Um, with Ekin and Chrissy Chow in it, and mm. that was really well received. I think a lot of us came out really liking that film, um, liking his direction of that film, um, his ability to work with Chrissy Chow, who really kind of stole the show in that film, and it kind of proved that she could take on, um, you know, some a, a serious mature role, uh, especially against an actor. Um, who's been around for a while, like Yikin Chang, and and do it really well. Um, so this was an interesting choice to kind of uh, pair himself with her. Yeah, g- give me an Ikin movie of today's age, and I'm I'm sort of instantly interested because I I like Ikin in in his older years a little bit. Still looks great, but but as we've discussed many times before, give me feel 100% Ikin, and I'm going to tell you to f off because <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> but give me it had to be you and this breakup 100. I mean. So, mm. Totally. So uh, it, uh, it's nice how the performance, your, your perception of performance changes uh, with uh, your own age and their age, which is uh, certainly something that happens with Lawrence as well, uh, for my money's worth here. Yeah, and I think this is, uh, you know, it was a bit of a gamble because, again, you, people would see this and in instantly think, you know, going back to the well, um, why, why are you doing that? Especially after such a long time, nobody was really clamoring for a sequel, right? <laughs> But but isn't that quite lovely that someone stands behind that choice? Like I'm I'm gonna bring it back and I'm gonna do the best yeah. I can, even though commercially no one is asking for it. There's not been a reboot of these things uh, just to coincide with current trends and traditions. So I, I kind of like that out of the blue choice. To be honest, uh, it, it intrigued me that um, he picked up that ball so long after um, uh, the second. I guess a little bit of a spoiler here if you haven't seen the film, and if you haven't seen it, you might want to go watch it first. Um, I guess the main plot point is that Anne has passed away in some kind of water accident, uh, and this prompts their daughter, Hei who's now about 21 years old, to return and find uh, her father. And because I was, you know, when I saw the posters for this, I'm like, I don't see Carol Chang. I don't see her mentioned <laughs> on the credits. I don't see her on the poster. So is she, are they just writing her out of the series? Or what's going on? And no, they actually use a digital young version of Carol Chang that's extracted from, I guess, footage from the first and second film in yep. some way and manipulated. And um, they use not her voice, but I guess... Uh, digital recording manipulation of her voice how do you think that worked well when i first saw the exposition dump in terms of what happened to her it's it it, it i felt kind of horrible because of the, she passed away yes but she drowned so it was sort of just giving us a big turd sandwich at that point they're just <laughs> just ripping out our hearts because she drowned but the the likable thing about Cheng's direction. I'm going to check if he even uh, had a. Uh, yeah, he did co-write script. The likable part of his uh, his writing too is the psychological journey that this means and how he subsequently, technically and story-wise, uses Anne. 
And that sort of, not in a revolutionary way, but that sort of won me over that Lawrence decided to make it a key integral part of that character's psychological journey. And and, and that sounds deep and complex. It's not. But I, I felt um, fairly affected by the end. And uh, technically, I think the, it was quite clever. It was not this, oh my God, lame technical gag. It just done just because we could. It felt like a focused effort to extract just the right angles, just the right footage, maybe some actual dialogue that would match scenes, but obviously it uses a lot of uh, dialogue that's dubbed to match the purposes, but also cutaways to not betray the fact that this footage does not match. And technically, I thought that was unexpected, unexpectedly uh, well integrated, to be honest. Um, so that was my take, and uh, by the end, I felt a little, little, little bit of a tear because it it mattered this inclusion, to be honest. Yeah, it, it was a surprise for me, but I was glad that it was more than just lip service saying that exactly. you know the, the character had died and that's it, you're not going to see her. Um, and I was not expecting this to really, you know, because I kind of thought, all right, what is this going to be? It's going to be, you know, a modern day uh, chasing girls you know, kind of formula, Lawrence yeah. chasing Chrissy. And I was, it was none of that really. I mean, yeah. there's a, there's, there's some boob jokes thrown in, in a couple places, a couple that might be deemed as inappropriate. We'll talk about that. Um, but really I was very surprised at some of the dramatic points in which, you know, he's really dealing with this as a sort of carryover from his, uh, you know, relationship and dealing with that. So, um, really give him kudos. And there, there's one moment where he's, it's almost like he's breaking the fourth wall because he's saying, you know, can some actor tell me how to react in this situation? You know, he's, he's narrating uh, as, as yeah. he's done in the first and second film, you know, where I'm very happy because my daughter's just returned. And I'm also devastated because I've just learned that my ex-wife has died. Right. And, mm. you know, he's narrating that, but he's also emoting on his face you know and so it's it, it was just sort of an interesting a very interesting moment that was written into the film and it continues well, well, on. Well, well, well that fourth wall moment i didn't like but uh, but but he still keeps that thread going of uh, how he internally feels about this and how he reacts towards the fact that Anne is sort of back in his life but and he has to deal with her mentally and emotionally but 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 i think um, breaking the fourth wall uh, it wasn't necessarily needed but it was just one instance then so you you forget about it too uh when i look back at it uh, it certainly didn't ruin the psychological journey no not at all and i you know um i i was I, again it was a, it was a nice curveball I would say that I was thrown because it was certainly beyond for what we normally get with contemporary Hong Kong cinema. It was giving me a lot more than I was expecting. So I, I give him a big kudos for that. Um, I hope she was uh, compensated by the way, Dodo, because this, this is, I, I hope those are the rules in the Hong Kong movie industry that if you lose, if you, even if you use an actor this way, that he or she gets some sort of compensation because she, he's, he's sort of in the movie. Well, I tried to do some digging about that because I, I did some searching on, you know, why she wasn't in the film. And I think he's still got a pretty good relationship with her. He said that he did approach her to do the film. Um, she does radio now. And, and she said, you know, she's kind of moved on and doesn't really want to get back into film. I don't know 
when I was in Hong Kong, she was big into the the presenter stuff on TVB. So for like big awards shows or Miss Hong Kong or Mr. Hong Kong, those kind of things, she was often tapped as a presenter along with Eric Zhang. Um, but uh, she, she just seemed to move away from movies. You you would kind of hope, even though you don't notice, that he could have used her voice at the very least. But yeah. uh, obviously, it, it's a personal choice, and she she doesn't know Lawrence anything, obviously. So he did mention that you know he did approach her, and um, so I think he did the right thing. I think she probably signed off on some aspect of this um, in some way, and he said. You know, there's talk about doing a part four, but he doesn't want to do a part four unless he can get her really to come on board. Hmm. So I guess it would be, you know, a continuation kind of with some of what we've done, what they've done here or flashbacks or something. Yeah, that sounds a bit fraught with danger because I think uh, without spoiling it, Anne and Long Foon's arc is is concluded in a way here yeah. um so uh, but, but again i was surprised by yuppie fantasia free but the in-between stuff i didn't think was um as interesting as the, the corporate stuff that's standard storytelling but that's the fact that uh corporate people are out to make money and uh stomp out the little little people that's standardized storytelling but i i that wasn't as interested i wasn't as interested in that versus the key core of lawrence cheng now becoming a fatherly figure again that that interested me much more and the sidetracks the supporting characters uh, the daughter's friends and the potential romantic interest connected to that i didn't feel it played in into it all as effectively as uh, uh, and, and and this core was much more interesting psychologically and emotionally um, and, and it clearly shows to be honest because uh, I don't know about you but Lawrence looks great he has aged very well and he looks comfortable on screen I think they, this is the first time I've really been impressed by him that he uh, he looks comfortable being a little bit of a fool and awkward but also um, playing the internalized emotions and a little bit more nonverbal emotions. And I think it looks smashing, to be honest, uh, doing all of that. And he believes in following through on this character, uh, which sort of shows up, uh, in my opinion. So um, I don't know how you feel about him now at 52 or however uh, old he is in reality, but I think it looks great. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think um, he handles the role very well. I think it's, I, you know, even though there is this age discrepancy here between him and Chrissy Chow, um, I think he has a, a stronger sense of maturity and charisma that, and, and especially success, because he's very successful in the business that he now does, working for uh, Anthony Chan, Chan Yao. And I think it's much more believable here for me that, okay, yes, she would see him uh, in this, you know, sort of mature, successful guy. I mean, that, that happens. That's, that's real. Mm. Versus the older films where these, you know, um, you know, like Roseman Kwan or, you know, because he's not in a really high level position. He's basically a, a mid-level manager, you know, um, perhaps not, he's not quite as smooth, you know, he's not quite as successful. So perhaps a little bit more believable here for me um, than in the earlier films. And then in terms of her, I mean, I, I don't, even if I've seen a movie with Chrissy Chow, I don't think she left an impression on me, but it's very like 
likely that this is my first movie involving her. I, I think that role and that interplay pays off decently towards the end because they bring up notions of, without spoiling it, that you know she, that she's not trying to be a motherly figure. That, and, and she's flat out says to Hey Hey that this is not my job. So I'm not going to uh, put that on your shoulders or anything. But I am also in it for more than just uh, the success factor. You know, she's not a gold digger necessarily. And while this isn't as well honed as the core dramatic beat involving Lawrence mainly, it is it is something I take away from the movie, that little maturity that they place there. They they don't do it subtly, they all speak about it, but it's not clumsy as made. And I, I appreciated the uh, maturity of it all that works so much better than... Um, than than wackiness in combination with this, um, I I I, got, I was more tuned into the movie uh, when the majority sort of found its stride during the last third, if you will. Yeah, I, I think there it's in, an interesting parallel too because you have um, sort of the generational workings here, where you have the fifty-two-year-old Foon, you have Bobo who's twenty-nine. When we, and again, when we think of Chrissy Chow's twenty nine. It's like, wait, really? Is she that old now? Because um, she's <laughs> oh, kind so of you, so you followed her for quite a while. Yeah, she um, from from her very earliest sort of pseudo model uh, entry into the market to her photo books to when she actually started doing films. You know, now that she's you know playing a character pushing thirty, believably, I would say, you know, and and that's kind of like this cutoff period for women. Um, to you know, to be successful, get married, get all their things arranged in Hong Kong culture, and then you have this up and comer played by Lorraine Tang as Hey Hey, who's kind of you know, you know, this is her first film. Um, I I don't know if she's a pseudo model herself or, or what her background is, where she came from. I'm guessing so. So she's kind of in the shadow of Chrissy Chow here as like the next generation. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's sort of like an interesting play that they kind of hint at here. Were you comfortable with how Lawrence Cheng uh, played the fact that Hey Hey is a little bit of a wild child and not ashamed about her sexuality or such? Uh, I have to tell you, I I didn't think it was necessary to to um, uh, treat her as boobs for a for, for a stretch or two. Uh, it didn't it, it, that that characterization didn't really. Um, matter to me by the end. I didn't feel like those things connected just because she's been in America. She's comfortable with just ripping off her bra and leaving it in the staircase or whatever he's saying here, Chang. But I, I didn't think that those were comedic beats that it, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable to be yeah. honest. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's you know, again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, they they do a comparison when she walks in and she finds uh, Chrissy Chow or Bobo's bra and she says, Hey, it's the same size as me. You know, it's like uh, okay. Or when he first opens the door and sees her and he's kind of like oogling her, he doesn't really know it's his daughter. It's like, uh, okay. Mm. Um, and I get it though. I, I, I get what he's, he's trying to do Lawrence here because he, he isn't, he, you know, at heart, his awkwardness towards life is still there because he's not just because he's 52. He's not, uh, experienced in, all that life contains, including childbirth and raising a kid. So that 8990 version of Lung Fung can very much come out. And I realized that structurally, but he, he goes a little bit too far with sexual innuendo 
involving his daughter, and that that made me a little bit. Uh, I squirmed a little bit, especially yeah. the thing with uh, when he's in the car and uh, Julian Chung comes uh, comes in with his cameo as the cop, and that that was a little bit okay. Tone tone the thing down. There's a wordplay here too that um, we probably didn't mention in the other films because Anne's character, her Chinese name is Hoi Anwa, which is the same. You know, if you know Anne Hoy, the director, it's the same. Right. It's the same name, um, and so that doesn't really come across because they only call her Anne, um, even though they refer to her by her Chinese name in in a few places um, throughout the series. But here, you know, because in this mix-up, when the the police officer thinks that he and Hey Hey are doing something inappropriate in the car, she says her surname is Hoy. It's not uh, Lung, which is. Uh, Lawrence's character, so it, it again ties back to that uh, that naming gag. We do get some cameos, as you mentioned. Uh, Julian Chung's here. Joyce Cheng uh, has a short role. Eric Cott returns, although in a very different role as a bearded and a somewhat balding security guard mm-hmm. um, at the at, at one of the buildings. And as Kenneth mentioned, there is this plot of about you know commercialism and big uh, land-holding companies forcing out the little guys. And, and this is a very big issue in Hong Kong. It's a direct, you know, social commentary on things that are happening. Um, this company, Tang Lung Holdings, which is owned by uh, Anthony Chan, basically remodeling malls and making the rent really high so that, you know, mm. small independent um, shop owners can't really afford it. And um, uh, it's it's been a big issue, so it's one that they wanted to make p- part of the plot here so i do get that and um two two on the nose you think uh, um i'm not asking because i disliked it but uh, you as someone who can relate to it being ha- having been in hong kong do you think it's uh, a valid uh, i think commentary? i think it's fine but when they get they get a little bit too dramatic when they send the enforcers to come in and like run the granny off and then the granny gets hurt we've seen that kind of stuff done before in earlier films um in some of the new year films and 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 stuff this has always been you know kind of a point point of contention you know bullying the elderly and it is something that pops up in the news from time to time too mm. um so you know it, it's relevant but it's pretty it's very in your face here right the other thing too with we get the return of the buddies uh, so manfred wong here and peter Lai are back although only briefly um they have a couple funny scenes where they're Comparing pills, basically, oh. uh, old news, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're betting, they're, they're betting. betting on who's got more pills, <laughs> kind of like a game, you know, traditional gambling game, and a lot of reference I, to I, Viagra for these guys. Uh, throughout. I, I, I like the fact that they they were betting on pills that would apply to all of their um, their illnesses and uh, ailments, right? So whatever they won, it, it would have been the right prescription for each and every guy. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Um, and no, no real. M- carry through for the characters um so for example i think we learned that tai lung has become a chinese medicine practitioner um and pierre has a girlfriend or a wife now who is so young that she can't go to macau to get into casinos so oh. um that's kind what's of the, the uh what's the age limit in macau I, i'm guessing 21 so right um i'm guessing she's maybe 20 or something but but uh, yes, there were sort of glorified cameos. But um, a little point is made within all of this that, at at the very least, Manfred Wong's character he has gotten somewhere. He has made something more of himself, and um, Lawrence Chang is still searching 
yeah. uh, somewhat, uh, even though he's changed jobs throughout his life, I'm sure. But there, there's a little point made there that I thought was valid. And then it was sort of nice to see the guys, but not go to town with uh, 2017 gags galore or anything. But honestly, I would have liked to have more with them, with their lives now, rather than the shifting focus to the younger crowd. So you have baby John Choi um, here as the son of Anthony Chan, who kind of comes in and he likes Hey Hey, and then there's a bit of a rivalry because Hey Hey has a, a tomboy girlfriend um, played by um, Hedwig, Hedwig That's Tam. Hedwig, yes. And... Um, you know, as so Sam, so therefore, so people all, all think she's a boy. Yeah, although, who'd make that mistake? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you you kind of got to be she, blind. But, yeah. But um, they have kind of a love triangle thing going on for a while. Um, that's all fine. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, baby John Choi's fine and, and Hedwig was fine. Um, baby but, John needs to change his name if he wants to be taken seriously, just yeah, saying. Yeah. Uh, Lorene, Lorene Tang, I think, um, in some of the scenes she does okay. In other scenes where she's got to do a little, do a little bit of the heavy lifting, her inexperience shows. I think that you know, over time, given more roles, and not just booby roles, I think she can, you know, um, have a chance to expand and do better. Yeah, she tends to work when the movie works too. When Lawrence is focusing on himself and. And, and the family, she she tends to be fairly well immersed into that. But I, I think that comes from Lawrence's uh, fairly tuned focus uh, uh, to the core drama, as I've said uh, before. So, um, uh, but she feels new. Uh, that's true. By the end, I think um, I was I was kind of pleased. It, it's almost an officer and a gentleman kind of moment, although done in reverse, um, because uh, the characters of Bobo and, and Foon are keeping their relationship secret. And then finally, uh, you know, Bobo just takes it on herself to kind of get it all out in the open <laughs> in a very nice scene, um, which I think, you know, was effective and, and worked well. And by the end, I really felt that she had kind of, the way she treats Foon, it's it's almost like she's another Anne in some ways, not overly so, but she still dominates the relationship um, in, in, in a good portion of the film, which, you know, is is a testament to his character, even though he's older, he's more mature, he's more powerful in terms of his job, but he's still kind of the same Lung Foon. He's still kind of, you know, taking the somewhat submissive position in, in the relationship. That, that, that is true, but at least she is, She I think she clarifies that she knew and was this way towards him, and I think I, I got the sense that she doesn't want uh, to fall into that trap necessarily, even though aspects of that uh, domination, if you will, uh, comes through. But but I don't think it's, um, you know, it's Anne version 2.0 and it's all going to hell necessarily. So, um, no, no, not they, at all. It, it, it's, mm. it's a version that I think works for them and, and for their relationship um, through some of the comedic interplay, but also, you know, some of the moments where, I guess Foon just kind of needs her, her to take control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, again, we we might have spoiled a little bit uh, of uh, matters here, but I'm not going to be uh, totally clear about this. But but I have to say, the um, 
the, the various sort of ending beats emotionally for Lawrence Cheng, I thought, re- was really sold well because he has, throughout the movie, voiced his um, both his anger and his sorrow. And by the end, he has uh, he shouts that out in a sort of finalized manner about uh, what he loved about Anne and what he hated about her. Why? Because he, he's felt um, belittled throughout his life. And I thought that, that those contrasts of being angry at how he was treated and obviously feeling sorrow because this has been dropped into his life, this, um, this information, no one came to him as soon as it happened. I think, I mean, it's a movie, it's, it might feel manufactured, but I, I have to tell you, Paul, it got me that those mixtures and Lawrence utilizes um, a, a nonverbal strength and a fairly subtle emotional outburst that was earned. As a matter of fact, I, I really thought that was a nice little period to um, to all those years for him, and obviously um, throughout three movies that uh, he needs to, um, uh, you know, uh, let go as part of his journey. And uh, I thought that was quite effective, and um, really made me like um, having followed through on all three movies because when all is said and done, I think this is the strongest one because it um, it it, um, it does these things uh, quite correctly. So in sort of wrapping things up, we uh, get to the closure of the film, and there is a mid-credits scene of sorts um, where Bobo encounters a man on the street, none other than, as we mentioned before, Ikin Chang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Chang being very judgmental of the age uh, gap, uh, and, and they do it off screen, which is so hilarious uh, as he runs away. You know, Pervert! <laughs> And then he runs away like a little chicken. So, yeah, <laughs> what the hell's funny? And so that this is, I guess, uh, you know, a, a very direct call out um, because they talk about, oh, do you remember the thing from a, you know, like three or four years before? And they're, I think they're d- directly referencing Breakup One Hundred. Um, a fun, a fun little cameo as you know things kind of close off, and then uh, we get to a few, not many, but a few sort of outtakes where it looks like the cast is you know doing what they do and having some fun at the same time, uh, and that closes things out. Subtitled outtakes because I'm used to the fact that translators their job ends as the uh, screen goes to black. Yeah, but uh, in 2017, someone has realized that. If we're going to continue to do crap in the end credits, then continue to translate the damn thing. Yeah, so and, and that's, that's still not a consistent choice either. There are still quite a few modern films that don't do that. So mm. um, kudos to the director and anyone else involved in making that decision for us, yeah. you know, who mm. like to rely on subtitles. Mm. Um, I, I can just imagine that Kevin, when he does translations, that they don't give him any additional material when the end credits start rolling, right? He only translates what is given, essentially, um, yeah. or, or something like that. Maybe they just give him, give them. They, he gets order up to a, to a certain point, and uh, if there's uh, additional scenes, then sometimes us Westerners are a little bit screwed when it yeah. comes to DVD and certainly watching it, watching it in the cinema. But it, it was a nice touch. So um, yeah, full professionalism, all sing sound as well. Uh, even when Fe, uh, Hey Hey. She she mixes and matches um, Mandarin uh, according to the subtitle, so um, it's all it's all live uh, as far as I could see. And in terms of availability, this is um, the most available of the three films. There is a 
three-pack, uh, a DVD three-pack, and a Blu-ray three-pack. Um, I was hoping to get a hold of the Blu-ray three-pack just to see the treatment they had done with the first two films, but I haven't, um, I haven't been able to get a hold of that as yet. Um, you can still find A Brief Encounter in Shinjuku, the Fortune Star um, version is out there and available through secondary sources. And I'm guessing that uh, Yuppie Fantasia itself, um, you know, if you search pretty hard, you could probably find a secondhand copy somewhere. Um, yeah, both were Fortune Star um, uh, properties, so they weren't spread out between, you know, Universe and Fortune Star or things like that. So, um, And if you're very lucky, I would say do try, if you can get a hold of the uh, Megastar earlier release, um, you, you can uh, pick that up. It's, it's, a, it's a good quality version of it. Um, Though, again, I don't know what they've done with the DVD in terms of upscaling or any of that. I'll have to find out some of that later. Um, for the final film, uh, Yuppie Fantasia 3, you can, of course, find that digitally. It is on iTunes, uh, at least both the U.S. store and the Hong Kong store. I'm not sure about um, other stores internationally, but I'm guessing so, since it seems to be on both of those stores. Um, no special features as such um, for that release, but... Um, you get the film in HD. It's uh, interesting to kind of look at the film technology coming out from these three films. You know, you've got this basically two-decade gap, and now you've got uh, this story being kind of told in full, vibrant HD colors. Um, so how far we've come, really, right, in, in filmmaking and storytelling. Do you think that makes the connection a little bit weak because it's, you know, the 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 look and feel of it's so very different? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, it's all natural progression, really. And for most of the movie, Lawrence kept his stylistic flourishes in check. There, there, there's some stuff in the first third where he does sped up shots and uh, whooshy noises on the soundtrack for, for this third one. But otherwise, he keeps uh, a sort of movie language uh, straight and professional like a 2017 movie would uh, feel like. Um, I mean, it, it only clashes because this movie features a montage of older scenes, so you realize that, oh my God, they uh, he looked that way <laughs> back in the day, and those guys were way younger. But um, otherwise, I think it's a natural uh, progression and um, and uh, real, real enough uh, as made, you know, realistically made. All right, that's going to wrap it up for my notes. Um, I'll give the final say over to my guest host, Mr. Brorson. Um, I mean, is in your opinion, is this uh, something that somebody who's never encountered the series, they should go out and do their utmost to you know, watch them in order? Or do you think they could just stick with getting the more available Part 3 on its own? Yeah, I think watching the third one first isn't the most heinous crime in the world. It's because we, they make sure we are caught up uh, fairly decently. Um, so if you want to make the journey in reverse a little bit, then 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 absolutely give it a chance. Um, it's it's not a rebirth that is a classic one, but it's un, it's unexpected in many ways and. Uh, a real Hong Kong movie. If you're tired of the fact that uh, Hong Kong movies seems to be mainland Chinese movies nowadays, that this seems like a real Hong Kong movie. If you want that Hong Kong feel, then this is a good one to get. Even though the China 3D logo opens, which might mean this has co-investors. I don't know. 
China 3D doesn't mean it is 3D. It's just just the name of that company. Confusingly enough, they they <laughs> their name is on 2D movies. Uh, at least I don't think this was 3D. If it was, then then what a waste. Um, because uh, there, there are some effects that seem like, oh my god, we can do 3D because we have some CG stuff. But um, uh, otherwise, it's um, it's um, you flow with the movie quite uh, quite nicely. Whether you and whether you pursue the other movies, uh, I guess it's up to you. They might be a little bit too hard to get them. Uh, well, 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 you said there are remastered versions out there. So, um, uh, but. Um, if you like the sound of this, the way it drops into drama and emotions every now and again, then it's not a waste of time at all to follow this through three 90-minute movies. You know, they're, they're not too long either. They're, they, they don't have to pad stuff into 100 and, 100, uh, 110 or whatever. So uh, nice, uh, nice breezy viewings that you can get uh, done with in your life uh, quite quickly. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snow's Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us at our website. That is kongcast.com, K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com at kongcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And we're over on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with um, my regular co-host, Kevin, and all that he's doing. You can find him on uh, Twitter at The Golden Rock and over on his new movie news site called Asia in Cinema. That's asiaincinema.com. But let me give uh, the floor back over to our special guest host this week, um, the always wonderful Mr. Kenneth Brorson. Sir, where can they find out more about you? Still going for the tongue twister. Respect. With the name and all. Uh, uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, I suppose, uh, go over to our site, podcastonfire.com, where you'll find plenty of shows where Paul has uh, graced us with his presence and splendidly so to pat you on the back as well. And uh, my writing is over at sogoodreviews.com, a mixture of Hong Kong and Taiwanese of, uh, and a variety of genres, some inappropriate, some some very much appropriate. Uh, and uh, across those sites are your social media links so i won't um, i won't recite them here so um, that's uh, that's me out and thank you paul for inviting me on i don't think i've reviewed a movie with you well we did the commentary the passion island commentary which had review notes and some uh, laughter at how ludicrous that movie was but uh, i think this is the first time i've been let into the the reviewing booth in the traditional sense. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for agreeing to come on and for cramming all three movies in together because I know it was a a little bit tight for your schedule in terms of movie-watching stuff. And uh, this will certainly not be the last time. Uh, I am currently in the pre-production stages of putting together a short series um, that I hope to launch in the not-too-distant future that I'll be doing with uh, Kenny B uh, as the co-host. And uh, so I'll have more on that to come 
in the future. And again, this is sort of a sort of an intermediary show. We're not really back to regular um, production time, time-wise, because we still got a lot of stuff uh, going on in you know real life things. But um, hopefully, this will uh, tide us over. For the next show, I will be talking about the Donnie Yen and Andy Lau uh, new blockbuster film, Chasing the Dragon, which I was very fortunate to get out and see um, actually last night. And I think Kevin's going to be watching it this weekend. So we are going to be talking about that. It'll be probably a shorter episode just focusing on that film because I don't think I'll be able to get to see anything else between now Mm -hmm. and then. Um, But looking forward to talking uh, about that and Andy Lau's return to Lee Rock. Yeah, it's a simultaneous premiere, so almost Hong Kong and stateside, it sounded like. Yeah. Um, So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the eScreen Podcast saying, we wish you good viewing as always, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. See you next time, everybody. I'm doing Kevin now. I'm playing Kevin's role. The upbeat Kevin. Sweet.